You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hey, how are you? Are you, where are you? I'm in my office in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but it's a big office. No one is here except for (laughs) my son and a co-worker, a researcher, and we're all pretty much isolated from each other and from everything else for that matter. Yeah, uh, sorry to remind you, but you're, uh, you're one of the high-risk groups, as am I. Really? You mean that we're older than 20? Yes, right. Well, I just taught a class this morning, and one of my students presented a breakdown of cases in, uh, in New Jersey, which are rising alarmingly. And um, it was a little alarming to me the, how much the risk rises with age. So yes, there are people in their 30s and 40s who are getting really sick and dying, but uh, it goes up a lot when you hit 60s, 70s, and 80s. Great. <laughs> Terrific. All right. Uh, so I'm not sure what you had in mind. I, I, I wanted I to tell you me. one thing that's on my mind at the moment. My, my son very early on mentioned hydroxychloroquine as, if not a cure, a drug that could ameliorate the effects of COVID-19. And... I was just on the phone with a friend of mine who is a doctor in Bloomfield uh, Hills, Michigan, talking about double-blind tests. All this really quite puzzles me. He said that when we developed the parachute, did we first throw say, 100 people out of a plane without parachutes and 100 people out of a plane with parachutes to see how effective they might be? Or did we just assess the fact, well, they seem to work? So what's the implication there, that we shouldn't be so fussy about testing the safety of some of these treatments? We should be fussy, but... With certain limits, um, yeah. I keep asking myself, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Okay, so President Trump publicly endorses it. And if you're of my political persuasions, anything that he publicly endorses immediately, I think it's something that should be avoided at all costs. However... Just because it's coming from him doesn't mean he's wrong. And here you have a drug. It's not an untested drug. It's a drug that's been used for lupus. It's been used for malaria. It's been used for rheumatism, arthritis. Um, So it's been administered probably in millions upon millions of doses. Okay? Yeah. So we know it's not killing people. Um. At, at, at the very least, and there is some, call it anecdotal evidence, whatever, you that it might work for COVID-19. 
Well, what do you do? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the assessment of treatments and vaccines and all that stuff, uh, these are extraordinary circumstances, and I'm sure that the process will be streamlined as much as possible, but we don't want to start introducing things that are going to make the problem worse. Um, so I don't know. I, I have that problem with Trump as well, though, uh, that when he says something, then my knee-jerk reaction is to d disagree with it. And, um, and I try to resist that because I think some of his impulses are good. I mean, so for example, Trump's, Trump wants to get us out of Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. That's great. I mean, I'm all for that. I thought we never should have gone in in the first place. How we do it, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going to agree with exactly the, you know, the details uh, he has for withdrawing. But um, I try to avoid being one of those knee-jerk anti-Trumpers because after all, one of the worst aspects of the Republicans was that they all became knee-jerk uh, opponents of Barack Obama, and it's just so stupid and irrational. Indeed. All right, so... So uh, let's start again. Yeah, okay. Here, here's the thing. So I just wanted to let people know that, I mean, some might be asking, what the hell am I doing talking to you anyway? How did this come about? Uh, and so I just wanted to tell people that um, I posted a, this is what happened. I posted a piece about three, almost exactly three years ago on uh, your hostility toward Thomas Kuhn. And you had said in a, you know, you'd written a series of columns for the New York Times and then it was becoming a book, The Ashtray. And you were on this podcast where you uh, talked about your problem with Kuhn, the great philosopher of science, and you were sort of blaming, sort of kind of blaming Kuhn for Donald Trump and for fake news and, and all this stuff. And so I wrote a piece that was critical of that. And, but, you know, and then I also said, but I'm a big fan of Earl Morris and I show my students uh, in this class I teach on war, the fog of war every semester. Uh, but I wrote this thing up and then to my delight, I got an email from you, and you were objecting to, um, well, you know, sort of a couple of things that I had in my post, and we've been exchanging emails on and off since then, and I've been trying to get you to, uh, to record a conversation with me online, and now it's finally happening. I'm delighted it's happening. Yeah, but why, I just want to know why you, your, uh, your assistant just suddenly contacted me yesterday and said, okay, Errol can talk tomorrow afternoon. How's that for you? And I said, sure. But I, I just wondered about the timing. Is it just because you're going stir crazy um, because of the quarantine? or No, this has been long overdue. Okay. I've been interested in having this conversation. I'm sure that the fact that everybody is trapped in one place or another helps, but I don't think that's the main reason for it at all. I mean, okay. These issues passionately interest me. I enjoyed reading what you had written about it and would love to talk about it. So that's why I'm here. 
All right. I had kind of a grandiose agenda for today. I got all excited after I realized that this was finally going to happen. And I, I wrote down some topics I thought we could talk about. And in the course of talking about them, of course, we could get into uh, Kuhn and the ashtray and your views of truth. But let me just give you the three big things I thought we could touch on. One is, can we ever know the world? To what extent is the world knowable? The other is, is there such a thing as moral progress? Are we really getting anywhere? Are we being nicer to each other? Um, and the third one uh, is related to the second, and it's, can war ever end? So these are three questions that have uh, that have really obsessed me obsessed me for a long time, and um, I'm hoping that I that we can talk about it and I can get your thoughts on them. Um, surprises me the questions. Uh, they're not really in any way related to Kuhn. Well, or to this idea of relativism or the relativism of truth. Um, you're asking me, of course, it's uh, a specific question you're asking me. Um, well, the first question is related to Kuhn. Can we ever really know the world? Um, depends on the nature of what you're saying here. Can we know facts? Can we know truths about the world in which we live in? And I believe we can. Yeah. Um, I think that the entire enterprise of science, among other things, is based on that belief that we are gaining knowledge about the world around us and that if you compare our knowledge of our physical environment today is compared to, say, 2000 BC that we know a lot more today than we did then. Right. So that there has been some evolution, some progress mm -hmm. in our understanding of the world around us. Uh, do I believe that we can come to some ultimate understanding of everything? How in hell would I know? But do I believe that we are progressing to a deeper and deeper understanding of the world around us? I believe that we are. Um, contra, I suppose contra Kuhn. I hate to get involved in some exegetical debate about what Kuhn really said or what he didn't say. But I noticed this is something that fascinated me, is that your support of him seems to have eroded uh, through a number of conversations that we've had. And I've been puzzled. This is a question I'd like to ask you. I'm going to end up interviewing you, you know. Okay. Um, uh, a question that I've had, um, why do people so vociferously defend Thomas Kuhn? Uh, and this is something that uh, I am puzzled by. And I think it's all based on some very, very deep confusion uh, where people don't really understand the difference 
between saying that people believe all kinds of crazy things, that belief is relative, but the truth is not. It's a simple, if that's simple, it may not be simple at all, but it's as simple as that. Uh, uh, the question of why Kuhn is, um, why some people uh, admire his work so much is, uh, it's really interesting and complicated. I think, first of all, there's the problem that Kuhn wrote in this way that um, lent itself for people to project their own previous ideas onto him. So lots of people come away from Kuhn with different ideas. But then he also is promoting this kind of skepticism toward knowledge that is very appealing to certain kinds of intellectuals. And it, it, it bothers me that some people I know I really like and, and I respect, we're really smart, uh, think that I'm a naive realist because I think that science just discovers some true things about the world. And they appeal to Kuhn and some other postmodern philosophers of science um, to question my naive realism. And I think it makes them feel kind of smart and sophisticated to be skeptical in that way. And also, as I've argued in some of my pieces um, about the ashtray, I think that uh, Kuhn's skepticism historically has been associated with a kind of progressive left-wing outlook. Um, if, whether or not that's justified, maybe we could uh, argue about. But I think there are a lot of reasons that pe why, people, um, why people are attracted to Kuhn. They're attracted to Kuhn, but the ultimate defense of Kuhn always I find unimpressive. If people would tell me that they understood clearly, and maybe people just reject this distinction to begin with, the distinction between reference and, and belief, the idea that, that you can refer to things out there in the world um, uh, successfully, Belief, we know that the human capacity for belief is unfettered. We believe all kinds of crazy things. Yeah. Who would argue? Um, a lot of people who defend Kuhn want to defend him on the basis of some sociology of knowledge. I would never argue. I don't want to argue with people who say that there's a sociological component to science. Right. Who wants to argue about that one way or the other? It's clearly true. But it's also clearly true to me that there is a component which is not sociological at all. Yeah. And that's a component of truth. Um, you know, to use the the Kripke example uh, of necessary truth, necessary a posteriori truth, is gold, uh, an element with an atomic number of 79. Could it have an atomic number of anything other than 79 and still be gold? And this is something that we learn from the physical sciences. 
I don't believe that it is sociological, that it uh, is relative. It represents some form of uh, knowledge that can't be otherwise. So how do you deal with these questions? Uh, here's, so first of all, I, I want to, I, I have to tell you that, um, and I think I mentioned this in my review of the ashtray, uh, your, your very long uh, takedown of, uh, I mean, book length. Um, it was a very quick, uh, entertaining read. Your, your takedown of Kuhn, and you, at, you presented Kripke as um, a philosopher who had solved some of the problems that Kuhn, I guess, thought were unsolvable. And one of them is the relationship of language to the world. I would hesitate to use the word solve, but I would say that he did provide an alternative view, yes. Okay. Well, so let me, I guess I'm going to go back to sticking up for Kuhn. One thing I liked about Kuhn, and um, this might be because I'm an old acid head, is that he... You're not on acid now, I hope. I am not on, on acid now, but um, but I'm actually thinking of, oh, never mind. I, I won't go into that right now. Uh, Kuhn, I thought, had this really powerful way of talking about the degree to which language and all our concepts uh, derived from language obscure the world. You know, they reveal the world, but obscure it at the same time. And so we never see the world directly, according to Kuhn. We always see it through this kind of screen of, of uh, language. And maybe Kripke found a way around that, but I still think that this point that Kuhn was trying to make uh, about the limits of language is a really important and profound one. I guess that's, that's what I would say. So Kripke, yes, I appreciate his contribution, but I think Kuhn's point still stands. Well, this is a Wittgensteinian point to be clear. Um, I sometimes think that Wittgenstein did almost uh, irreparable damage to the modern world with his philosophy. Um, is language uh, an impediment to understanding the world? Does it constrain us in various ways? Uh, from seeing the world the way it really is, or are we always seeing things through the prism of language, modified by language, uh, informed by language, controlled by language? Um, you know, that's fine. Talk that way if you like. But let me ask you something. Do you believe there's a structure to DNA? Yes. Oh, I'm a realist. I'm 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 a naive realist, uh, according to some of my postmodern friends. So absolutely. Well, naive realism. I wanted to write an essay. Maybe I started it but never finished it. Who's afraid of naive realism? Um, of, of course, the minute you append the word naive to realism, it takes on a pejorative quality. Um, bad realism, naughty realism, unconsidered. Uh, realism, unthoughtful realism, 
Um, however, uh, how does language determine how we see the structure of DNA? Right. I think that language is really precise and, and powerful and revelatory in some cases, um, both in science and elsewhere. And it also has enormous practical uh, power as well. Um, so I guess when I talk about the li limits of language, I'm, I'm really talking about this idea of uh, absolute knowledge, really knowing the world. I just want to, so I think you just said that, you know, you think there are facts, there are lots of things we can know with certainty, uh, but that the world... Well, take, take the structure of DNA. How is language preventing me from seeing the structure of DNA? Well, um, I guess I can answer that by talking about the uh, overemphasis that some scientists and journalists have given to DNA and genes in general. Uh, so it's one thing to talk about. That's a different issue altogether. Okay. But you see what I, I – I'm, but I think no, – I don't, actually. I'm asking you how has language prevented us from seeing the structure of DNA? Uh, okay. I, I, am I conceding a point here? I, you know, no, I, I'm just asking. I, I don't think it has really. I think language, well, I get why Then you are conceding a point. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And then, but then I talk about how DNA has been used in our discussions about human nature and, and our uh, beliefs about science are unending a whole unending series of many, many, many uh, false beliefs. But that's different. To say that we believe things that are untrue is not to say that we can't know truth yeah. or that we can't assert that certain things are true. Right. Almost all of human knowledge, almost everything that people think is false. <laughs> you know, sorry. <laughs> You know, um, you know, it, uh, falsehood is, is probably part of our DNA, as is war, for that matter. You know, you ask this question, do I think there'll ever be an end to war? Um, it seems to me, given our, our warlike nature, no. Problem is homo sapiens. I'm sorry to hear you say that. I, I've spent... Uh an enormous amount of energy over the last 10 years or so trying to rebut that idea that war is uh, embedded in human nature. There are some really influential scientists who've been saying it, um, including several at Harvard, Richard Wrangham and E.O. Wilson and, uh, and Steve Pinker uh, are probably the most prominent. And I think the science that supports the idea that war goes way back in, in uh, human evolution is really flimsy. It's really bad. I quoted from The Fog of War because you had, you had a, I forget what your question was to McNamara. It was toward the end of the interview. And, uh, and he kind of went, well, look, obviously war isn't going to end. We're not going to change human nature anytime soon. 
And I hate that kind of fatalism. And that's why I've tried to present scientific arguments to show that war is actually quite recent. I mean, war meaning um, organized, lethal uh, group aggression. Um, Maybe we haven't had the capacity for it until recently. Well, some scientists say it goes way back hundreds of thousands of years into the Paleolithic, and that's, there's just no evidence for that. Uh, and when I look at human history, I think what is, I mean, obviously lots of war and violence, but then there are all these periods when there's virtually no war, um, at least in certain parts of the world. I think the default condition of humans is to be relatively peaceful with some violence at the margins. Um, so I'm, it bothers me that, that some people think that war is inevitable, that it, because it's part of human nature, because I, I, I worry that that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it is worrying. I mean, my own, my own view, I remember Stephen Hawking uh, talking about um, well, it was his view. Um, what happens when you combine uh, jungle DNA with modern weaponry? What does happen? Um, presumably nothing good. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. What do I know about really, really any of these things? I mean, I would always joke about uh, Steven Pinker's version of Candide um, that I imagine myself uh, as a dinosaur uh, on the Yucatan just before the asteroid hit. <laughs> uh, and imagining that somehow to some specious inductive logic that things were going to be just fine. Yeah. And finding out that I was wrong. Um, I don't know. I myself am a skeptic, a contrarian uh, at heart. And I'm attracted to I'm attracted in many ways to things that people have accepted as being inviolable and trying to figure out for myself if that's really true. Um, I think it's one of my, my better attributes, the fact that I question a lot of things. Um, Kuhn is a person who really deeply hurt my feelings. Um, I may be stupid. Um, I like to think that even if I am stupid, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> and that Kuhn had an authoritarian streak that was pretty unpleasant to deal with particularly if you were on the wrong side of it, which I was. And 
I suppose I could have written a much more moderate book. Um, it could have been more neutral, less filled with what I believe is probably obvious hostility. But it's not the book I really wanted to write because, in a way, there were so many things about Kuhn that infuriated me. The dogmatism, uh, the rejection of truth. But I think it goes way beyond that. A kind of, um, I would say, mealy-mouthed philosophizing, where you would constantly change your tune and modify it according to the objection at hand, um, leading to endless kinds of P and not P contradictions, inconsistencies. Uh, Also, I came from a tradition in history of science, which I still love. I still love history and philosophy of science. Um, Passionately. I did then and felt that I had been deprived of something that I really wanted to do, but now I would never do. I would never be able to do it. Um, Don't tell me you have regrets. Oh, I I have regrets about almost everything. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean... I don't know, maybe you would have been a great and colorful philosopher and you would have gotten a lot of attention, but I can't imagine you would have had the influence as a philosopher that you've had as a filmmaker. Well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to be able to think of things in film which do have a philosophical component. And I'm able to write. I... um, I really got a big kick out of writing the ashtray, particularly illustrating the ashtray. Um, it was a lot more fun to produce it as a book than as a series of articles in the New York Times, although I would never have been able to do it without the New York Times. Um, yeah, it's like, a, it's, it's like a, an art book as well as, I don't know, like a, it's kind of a memoir and also a philosophical argument. Uh, it's lots of things at the same time. So um, I, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you went with your, you vented your emotions because I think that it made the book more gripping and interesting that way. It was such a strange time being at Princeton in the 70s, in the early 70s. Um, with all of these ideas swirling around. And I'm lucky. You know, in writing the book, I was able to talk to all of these people who I admire. I would say principal among them, Saul Kripke and Hilary Putnam. Uh, Two people who, you know, I, I, I feel I've been lucky to really talk to a lot of smart people, including yourself. I'm lucky to be doing this today. Um, it's, a, it's a strange thing for a filmmaker to be involved in some kind of 
almost straight philosophical intellectual enterprise. And I wish I could continue doing it. I think it's, it's what I love about filmmaking too. There's a, there's a lot of philosophy in your, uh, in your films or certainly philosophical implications. I just want to ask you, since I've got you here, what you think of this point I tried to make in my review of your book, that sometimes I felt like your, your protests against Kuhn were too much and that you were... I think they're too little, but okay, for the sake of argument. Well, you, uh, you were so... So Kuhn's point about science and about scientific beliefs and knowledge and so forth was that they are always going to be, to an important extent, subjective and even emotional. We have emotional commitments to and aversions to uh, certain theories, pictures of the world. And I felt like you were sort of making that point also in your book because your view of, you didn't have this cold calculating uh, negative reaction to Kuhn. It was very emotional. It was personal as well as very intellectual. Because his reaction to me was very, very personal. Yeah. Uh, it's in many ways a reflection of that. But if you're asking me, do I believe that there's an irrational element in science? Uh, yes, there's an irrational element in belief. People believe endless irrational things, but that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as truth or progress in science. Right. It's a very simple thing that gets confused, gets conflated. Um, didn't I write you a version of Coleridge um, that uh, what's the Coleridge version um, that uh, life without love is like nectar in a sieve but life without hope cannot live it's the Coleridge ret refrain and I had a version pertaining to Kuhn if I can remember it correctly um but basically that science without truth cannot live. Right. And that one of the fascinations with science, I believe for all of us, is that we feel that occasionally we are grabbing a hold of the world, that we are learning something that we didn't know before, not something that is just pure belief, wishful thinking, but something that brings us closer to the nature of reality, to the nature of, of how the world really works or what the world really consists of. And I have a lot of, I think, crazy examples in my book. The book was never really reviewed to my satisfaction, not even close, even though a lot of really smart people liked the book and said very kind things to me about it. But... I try to actually look at Kuhn in a way that people don't bother to look at him. They just think, oh, sociology of science, there's a, a component of, of community belief to the scientific enterprise. Who wants to argue with any of that? I don't. I mean, if that's the sum of your argument, it seems like a really silly one. 
But the question is a much deeper question, which he was at war with. Whether there's progress in science, whether there's such a thing as truth in science, that is at the core of what I find so deeply wrong about his philosophy. Not that there's a sociological component. First of all, the ideas aren't even original to him. They were around in a lot of different philosophers and historians of science writing around the same time. He's become kind of this avatar, this this figurehead of this kind of idea. But if you're asking me, do I believe this degradation of truth and this idea that truth is relative comes out of people like Wittgenstein and people like Kuhn, if not Wittgenstein himself and Kuhn himself, I do. Yes, I do believe that. And do I believe it's bad? Yeah, I do. I, uh, I cite this example in my book. I mean, it's a silly example, but it had enormous influence on me as a child. Uh, a, a bet that I had um, with a kid who lived around the corner about whether um, Reno was west of Los Angeles. And uh, bet a dollar. The kid was bigger than me. Um, I brought out a Rand McNally's Atlas, which was one of my favorite, favorite things, and showed him, in fact, that Reno was west of Los Angeles. And the kid refused to pay up. He told me, well, you know, lines of longitude don't run across the water. Um, <laughs> Well, this is something that that has deeply fascinated me. Before I ever went to Princeton, probably before I even read Thomas Kuhn, I read a lot of Pierre Duhem and the, the whole idea that science was conservative, that if people wanted to retain a theory, no matter how foolish, how wrong, um, they could find a way to do so. They could find a way to make adjustments in their worldview that would allow them to continue to hold the same core beliefs that they had held before. Um, all of these things are been deeply influential on me. Yeah, I still think very often about correspondence and uh, coherence versions of truth. Uh, But ultimately, in fact, I think I write about them well in the book. Ultimately, I believe in a coherence, in a a correspondence version of truth. We're We're asking a fundamental question. How do our beliefs square against the world? Um, and to say that they're all sociological, call it a naive realism, call it whatever you want. But I have a section I quote from Matthew Messelson um, about DNA and the discovery of DNA, the structure of DNA, the the discovery of how, which he has 
by and large responsible for for how DNA replicates. Um, these major discoveries in biology, I believe, bring us closer to an understanding of the world around us. Give us a purchase on on the world. And Kuhn loses that in a kind of sea of kind of sociological, equivocal gobbledygook. Okay, I feel like I have to stick up for him again now. Why is that? Why do you have to stick well, up for him? Okay, here, here's, is he paying you? One, one immediate reason. No, I, I think I told you his son is, has been giving me a really hard time for, um, for I don't know, giving, for helping to amplify some of your criticism of his... Uh, his son hates me, I guess. Yes, I, I, I think that's probably uh, fair to say. But um, I just finished reading, this goes to what you were just saying about DNA. Uh, I, w- I just finished reading a book called uh, She Has Her Mother's Laugh. It's this gigantic kind of a history of genetics by a really good science writer named Carl Zimmer. Sure. And, and part of it is a kind of triumphal description of our increasing understanding of how we become what we are how we inherit traits from our parents uh, and their parents and how we absorb things from the environment and it's epigenetics and all that kind of stuff. Parallel with that is a history of eugenics and all these horrible ideas that have been inspired by some of this science. Uh, And so when I read, when I read this kind of history of science, I think I become afraid of our, desire to think that we really know what the hell is going on, especially when it comes to very important problems like what are we and what's the contribution of nature and nurture and what can we do about that? How, how can we improve our lives possibly by changing our breeding habits? In that case, I think Kuhn skepticism is, um, is really important uh, there's another philosopher I like better, though. I wonder if you ever ran into him. Paul Feyerabend, are you a fan of his at all? I was a student of his at Berkeley. You were? Oh, classic. What was he like? This is in the 70s? Yes, because I was thrown out of Princeton. Yeah. And I ended up at Berkeley. And Feyerabend, I mean, this is a long, long discussion in and of itself. Um, a kind of crazy person and a very angry person. Mm. Very, very angry. Mm. Um, And there's all of these questions about the interaction between Feyerabend and Kuhn. Kuhn was a faculty member in Berkeley before he went to Princeton Mm -hmm. and interacted extensively with Feyerabend um, you know, I have the same problems with Feyerabend that I have with Kuhn. Maybe they're even more severe. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say beyond what I've said in this book. Because I do try to, I try to think about a lot of these issues in some kind of crazy way whether they're, I mean, Kuhn gets away with saying the most outrageous things 
comparing the evolution of science to uh, natural selection, uh, Darwinian evolution. Uh, you look at this, and this is nonsense talk. It really is. It's uh, Why is it nonsense talk? Because the survival of scientific concepts is not survival of the fittest. It's survival of concepts that are true rather than false. Um, and truth and falsity have no role to play whatsoever in natural selection or Darwinian evolution, but they have a very important role to play in science. And the comparison seems to be kind of crazy. And yet, it has a kind of, I don't know, je ne sais quoi, it has a, 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 a kind of crazy resonance where people can say, oh, I see, now I understand it. It's really uh, science, it's like, like evolution. But, um, and why does he even say it? He says it because we believe that evolution is not evolution towards anything, it's emergent. Um, there is no issue of truth or falsity. We are repeatedly instructed. And Kuhn, I think it's a perfect example of sloppy thinking. Thought, oh, well, I don't like progress, and I don't think that there's progress in science, and I don't think there's truth in science, so let me just compare it to natural selection. And away you go. It amazes me how uncritical people are about a lot of the stuff in the structure of scientific revolutions. It amazes me. It still amazes me. He called, he compared scientists to drug addicts at one point. Mm. And he, he used the term brainwashing. Maybe he knows something I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right. Let me, I, I I want to, I, I think talking about uh, science as evolution, for me, it brings up an issue of um, what science is headed for. So we're not supposed to think that evolution uh, has any kind of goal. Science, the goal is, is figuring the world out. And I'm curious what you think, you sort of touched on this earlier, but I'm curious whether you think at some point we can say, yeah, science really has given us a pretty good picture of the world. We really, we understand it pretty well. And let me just add that in, when I became a science journalist in the 1980s, Stephen Hawking, who you made a film about, and some other very prominent physicists were saying, we're going to figure this whole thing out. We're going to solve the riddle of the universe. We're going to have this unified theory of physics, some called it a a theory of everything. Seems a little hubristic. Yeah. Well, this is another reason why I think this, the skepticism of some philosophers like Conan Feyerabend is, um, is valuable to, because a lot of people, including myself, really bought into this idea of science possibly explaining everything. So there really is no mystery left in the world. A lot of smart people believe that back in the 80s and 90s. Well, I can't be responsible for them and what <laughs> they think. Um, 
a writer who I'm rather fond of, David Deutsch and Fabric of Reality. Oh, yeah. All about deeper and deeper understanding of the world around us. Um, I think that's the hope. I don't think there's, for me, this idea that we're going to reach this, this node where everything is laid out clearly in front of us. But there is a belief, a belief I share, that we are learning more and coming to a deeper understanding of the world around us. It's not going to end anytime soon, I don't believe, but there's progress and a deeper understanding of how things work. Don't you think the skeptics are important for keeping us uh, from reaching, I don't know, pre- I think skepticism is great. I'm a skeptic about all kinds of things. There's a difference between skepticism and relativism. Let me go back to Firob and, and try to explain why I liked him so much. He was very happy when I met him because he was married to this this beautiful Italian physicist. And I had talked to people, this was in the early 90s, and I talked to people who'd known him for a while, and they said he'd never been happier. Um, and, you know, so I'd read some of his stuff, and I interviewed him in, in New York City, and I was trying to figure out why he said some of the crazy things that he says. I think Fire Robin hated bullies. He hated uh, authoritarian figures and institutions, and he... I think he hated science and he hated, I don't know, enlightenment philosophy uh, in general because he thought it was bullying toward other belief systems in the world. So I think Fire Robin very much believed in scientific truth, uh, but he worried that in part because it is so, science is so powerful, it becomes this domineering force that's wiping out all these colorful other belief systems. So it was kind of a, a political, uh, there was a political dimension to Fire Robin skepticism that wasn't in Kuhn. And that I actually liked, even though I thought in some ways. I think that's, I think that's definitely true. I remember that he was supposed to be um, teaching a course on philosophy of science that involved discussions of witchcraft and um, he got a warlock to deliver these lectures under the I guess supposition that it might even be him Um, he had and this is one thing that I really really did like about him he was perverse he was extraordinarily funny he was anti-authoritarian he was incredibly perverse Um, and and ironic no harm in that. This is this is no charge that you would ever level against Kuhn, who was humorless, authoritarian, um, hectoring. Um, his seminars, which for me are unforgettable, I would give anything. I've lost a lot of documents from years ago for one reason or another. One document which I still wish I had was the commentary that Kuhn wrote on my papers on Maxwell's 
displacement current um, because they were, to call them ad hominem is an understatement. And maybe I am. Maybe I'm just a truly irritating person, an irritant, an annoyance. Um, but one of the things that, and maybe this is telling me more than you want to hear, um, I've always been looking for people to talk to. Maybe I'm a lonely guy. Maybe I'm a guy because of really the nature of, of my employment, I'm isolated. I'm not part of an academic community per se. I live in my office. I journey out into the world to make a film now and then again. But in fact, I relish the opportunity even to have a conversation like this. Um, Kuhn is a person who I try to have a relationship with. Um, he turned out to be a very, very angry authoritarian father. I lost my father when I was two years old. Um, my father died of a massive heart attack when he was 43 years old. He was a doctor. And I was a very, very little boy. Uh, maybe it was the search for some kind of father figure. I don't know. But I was truly devastated by what happened at Princeton. And it may be all my fault. I cannot say that I'm blameless in any way. But one of the things that disturbed me the most and I suppose it's something that disturbs me about academia, is that I saw that Kuhn promoted people who seemed to be mediocre. He loved people who kissed his ass, who caused him no trouble. Maybe that's the way it works. And I was an annoyance. Um, he wanted to tell me what I could do and what I couldn't do, what lectures I could attend and what lectures I couldn't attend. He was, to say the very least, authoritarian. And to me, it's, it's interesting, perhaps even ironic, that I wanted to go to these lectures given by Saul Kripke. Um, Kripke was, you know, the new act in town. He was very young, just around 30 years old. And he was giving these lectures on naming and necessity, lectures that were given at Princeton. Uh, I believe I attended the second round of it. It might have been the second year that they were given. And Kuhn had told me that under no circumstances can you go to these lectures, which for me, you know, is just kind of you know, my tendency just simply to say, fuck you. I'm going to go to these lectures. And 
what's so interesting to me is that I don't believe I understood. I was attracted to them, but I don't believe I understood what was going on until much, much, much later. But it's really, um, to me, still really sad because I do, I do love the enterprise. I do love thinking about stuff. I've even wondered recently whether I should just give up filmmaking altogether, although I'm involved in making films as we speak, but I should just be writing. And um, because I can write about these issues that interest me much more easily than I can make films about them. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I loved your book. Uh, the I'm, really glad, I'm really glad it makes thank you. <laughs> you know, even though I was uh, I was critical of it, and that to me is kind of the point. That's one of the joys of philosophy or the intellectual life is the the give and take. I think as as a you get to think about stuff. Yeah, and swap ideas with other people. And what's weird about Kuhn is that from what you're saying, he didn't sort of establish even the minimal basis for that kind of give and take. I think good professors um, would love to have the criticism of students that you gave to Kuhn about some of his ideas. Uh, you know, I, at this point in my life, I, I've heard a lot of stories about famous scientists and, and philosophers, and it seems as though apart from their, their intellectual brilliance, some of them are really good at nurturing people and bringing out their ideas, even if it if the ideas contradict those of the uh, professors and others, form a kind of cult around themselves of acolytes, and it and there's very little intellectual creativity at all. Um, and it's true, and I think it's just one of the ironies of philosophy that somebody like Kuhn, who's this famous skeptic and skepticism should be all about open-mindedness and, and questioning that he was so authoritarian. Another person who I've heard was really like that and whom I also interviewed in the early nineties was Karl Popper. Yes. You know, he apparently was a total bastard to a lot of his students uh, would throw them out of the class if they disagreed with Popper to any extent. So I don't know. It, it's funny you say that you, you know, you feel you miss this interaction with other people. I look at your films and it seems like they're filled with interactions. Um, and it, making uh, a film is certainly more of a social enterprise than writing a book, which is very solitary. Yeah. Although, although in the ashtray, you did interview a lot of people. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, it was a good excuse uh, to meet Hillary Putnam. I'll always be grateful for that. Uh, I got to meet Hillary twice, um, second time shortly before he died. Um, and I'll always be grateful for that. I've had I've had the opportunity to meet 
to meet some extraordinary people. Um, Kuhn, alas, was not someone that you could really have a relationship with or a conversation with. Um, you, know, you know something? I realized that as a journalist, uh, I get to... So I, I can talk to some of these famous figures and they are probably far more respectful toward me than they would be toward um, students or even peers because they realize that I maybe just, it's just fear. They realize I could write something that makes them look bad, which actually I've done repeatedly in my career. Um, but that is one of the benefits of, uh, of being a journalist is that, I mean, I've, I've been able to have a, a lots of great conversations. I mean, like, like the one we're having right here. So uh, maybe you can cultivate these sorts of dialogues in, in your, in all your copious spare time between making films. I know that, uh, I don't know if you have the same position that Jeremy Bernstein had, but I do know that, I am this unending fan of quantum profiles. It's one of my very, very favorite books. Yeah. And I felt it was terribly sad when he was dismissed from the New Yorker for being too smart, <laughs> uh, which I believe was the case. Maybe this is just anecdotal evidence on my part, but still among my very favorite essays ever is the essay that he wrote on Bessel and Einstein. And, um, I don't know. I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah, reading Bernstein in the early 80s, that was one of the things that made me want to be, and his, his profiles of scientists in the early 80s made me want to be a science journalist. I thought that would be a really great job is talking to these smart people and then, and then uh, writing about them. Uh, Stevens did not treat Bernstein well. Right after I started working there in 2005, I said, uh, I, I was starting this lecture series, and I thought it would be great to bring Bernstein over to give a talk about his most recent book. I called him up, and he said, fuck no, I will never go back to that fucking place. He was really angry. He thought that Stevens had not treated him well, uh, and that they didn't see his writing, his journalism, writing for The New Yorker, as uh, something valuable. By the time they hired me, they, that attitude had changed. They hired me basically because I am a writer. It's interesting. I, um... Can I, let me just ask you one, one question. I've already sort of posed this to you, but let me, uh, let me just pose it again. Um, you, you met Stephen Hawking, right? You made the film about him. I spent a good amount of time with him. Yes. Did you talk about this idea of a final theory of physics that would tell us where the universe came from and why it has the structure that we observe, which allowed for our existence? I mean, he was one of the first people to start talking about this. I think he first gave a lecture on it in 1980, and then it was part of Brief History of Time. Um, I'm not sure if he still believed it by the time he died, but he was one of the most eloquent 
uh, advocates of this idea that we can figure out, we can solve the riddle of the universe. I just wondered if you talked to him about that and if you had, if you had an attitude toward that yourself. Talking to him was not so easy. Right. Uh, Daunting. Uh, We had a friend in common, uh, Sidney Coleman. I've met him. And I got to know Sidney pretty well because I asked Sidney to help me prepare to interview Hawking. Um, and as a result, we became friends. The loss of Sydney as a friend is a terrible loss for me because he is someone I, I truly loved. I love S- S- Stephen as well. I mean, they're incredible characters. And uh, probably what I love most about Stephen and Sydney with this element of perversity. They were incredibly funny. They were incredibly perverse, um, incredibly playful. Um, And most of my fondest moments with Hawking aren't really extended discussions of the nature of the universe, but really more commonplace things or politics. When I was filming a Brief History of Time, this was the time of the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hawking, who was incredibly left-wing, socialist mother. Um, I remember because he couldn't really talk at length, but he liked to hear other people talk and to interrupt with various observations of one kind or another. And I remember we were at the Cambridge Union. This is filming, this during the war, where he said, really, it's important that we make the world safe for the oil sheiks. (laughs) And so he had in his own economy of expression of way of saying an enormous amount. Um, I mean, I think there was the strange optimism about science and not so strange pessimism about man. Mm. Um, That the reason that we don't see intelligent life in the universe is because life reaches a certain point and extinguishes itself. Um, maybe not a Pinker-esque notion, but it was a notion certainly that that Hawking expressed. Um, the way I always think of it, whether I said this to him or he said this to me, I can't ever remember. I just kept thinking atomic weapons and jungle DNA. Um, our capacity to destroy ourselves say, in the last 100 years, uh, how has it increased? How has it exponentially increased? Um, Versus our DNA, which really is the same as it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ago. 
Um, one thing about history, history is really what deeply interests me most of all. I think I'm a, a historian manque of some kind or another. But the, the history doesn't clearly repeat itself. But what does repeat itself is human idiocy. <laughs> and that seems to be a constant. S Steven Pinker notwithstanding, human idiocy seems to be a feature of humanity. Um, maybe I have too uh, narrow a view. I, I get three papers delivered in the morning. I get the New York Times, I get the Wall Street Journal, and I get the Boston Globe. And to my everlasting horror, I actually read these papers in the morning. I open them up, I read them. I don't read all of them, I read some of them. And the idea of human idiocy is overwhelming. We're a dumbass species. How dare anyone be optimistic about us if you read about us on a daily basis? I mean, it's very nice to say there will be no more war or that people will not get into arguments with other people or that pettiness will suddenly dissipate and there will be universal harmony, a kind of uh, rondelet of... of, of of people singing songs to each other of, of hope and joy, but I don't quite see it that way. So when I tell my students, I've got, some of my students are very pessimistic and especially at a time like this. Why would they be pessimistic? <laughs> so what I, I feel like it's my responsibility to tell them certain things that have happened just in my lifetime. So when I was a kid, um, abortion was illegal in the United States. It was illegal in some states for a black person to marry a white person. Homosexuality uh, was against the law. Um, there was much more tyranny in the world. Uh, when I was in high school, the Vietnam War was raging. Uh, we had many more nuclear weapons than we have now. Um, not sure about that. No, that's, that's definitely true. The number of nuclear weapons in the world has enormously decreased since the end of the Cold War. Uh, they really peaked in the Reagan era, but there were still lots of them around in the, uh, in the 1960s. Um, then again, of course, you don't need that many of them. No, that's true. I know. Look, I, I'm, I'm just grasping at straws here. I, in other words, there have been advances in civil rights around the world. Uh, poverty has enormously decreased. These are the pinker things, and the reason I believe them is because they're actually true. They're, they're, they're supported by overwhelming empirical evidence. So I try to say these things to my students and to myself to kind of brainwash us to be hopeful for the future. Let me just ask you, we've been talking, we've been talking a while now. We're past the hour limit for these, kind, these conversations usually. How are you feeling about the future? Maybe you just answered my question. Are you a pessimist? Are you feeling pretty dark about where we're headed? Um, 
My line has always been that if there are two kinds of people, the glass half full and the glass half empty people, I represent a third category, the glass half empty and filled with poison. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, then you can only be pleasantly surprised if things aren't absolutely horrible. Yeah. I, uh, I look forward to being pleasantly surprised. I mean, I, I don't know the cynical part of me, and there is a cynical, there is a hopeful part of me too, but the cynical part of me says, okay, um, we've become more tolerant in certain ways. Um, we have conquered certain diseases. Um, But we're not giving mankind its due. Our limitless capacity to find new ways of disruption. Um, And yeah, as long as people are as dumb as they are, including myself, I'm not exempting myself from this in any way, uh, I always think of Kafka's line. It's one of my very favorite lines. Kafka's line to Max Broad, his closest friend. And Max said to Franz, surely, Franz, you believe in hope. And Franz said, yes, of course. Just not for us. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I think we have to end on that note. <laughs> I'm sorry this has been so desultory. I, um, no, not at all. I, well, I've really enjoyed it. Whether people... Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm glad to finally meet you, if, even if it's only in this kind of strange digital context. Um, but I've enjoyed your work. I'm glad to have the opportunity. I hope we get to talk again. Yeah, me too. Uh, I... Uh, Yeah, I like to continue working and thinking. What else is there, really? Hey, we're both pretty fortunate that we get to we get to uh, find ways to express our our inner tormented thoughts um, and make a living at it. Is Jeremy Bernstein still alive? I don't know. I've seen him within the last couple of years, and uh, he was still he still seemed fine, actually. Um, but as of today, I don't know. Sidney Coleman wanted to introduce me to him, and I tried to talk to him, but he was a kind of a nasty cur. He, he's, a, he's very curmudgeonly. By the way, I was at a meeting. I not change my view about his writing. I adore his writing, but uh, he wasn't particularly friendly to me. Yeah, well, that's, that's, he wasn't particularly friendly to me either. I, I think that's just his, his persona. I just wanted to tell you that I went to a meeting at uh, – this wonderful cosmology meeting in 1990 in the mountains of Sweden. I was the only journalist there and Stephen Hawking was there and Sidney Coleman and a bunch of other of these deep thinkers. And Coleman was like the comedian of the meeting. It was so funny. 
and constantly cracking jokes at other people's talks. And uh, everybody loved that guy. And his work was so bizarre. He was talking about baby universes and wormholes connecting our universe to, to other universes. But he talked about it. I know the science was, I'm sure, very impressive and had this mathematical basis. But he presented it as though it was this kind of big joke, which I really liked. Because cosmology is kind of crazy and absurd. Sydney was crazy and absurd and really, really, to the extent that I can even judge how smart he was, really, really, really smart. Um, Endlessly funny. I don't know how many Sydney stories you know, but I know a fair number of them and they're, I can relay one to you that I really, really like. Because he, he arrived, I believe it was a lecture being given by Murray Gelman. And Murray Gelman, who had a reputation for knowing everything about everything. And um, the ultimate polymath. And Sidney arrived late for this lecture, and someone had asked Gelman a question. Um, and and Gilman said, I, I don't know the answer. Sydney walks in and says, I know the answer. What's the question? <laughs> That's great. And he did. <laughs> oh, I bet that annoyed Gilman too. <laughs> Sydney was Sydney was wonderful. Hawking also had that. I I and I wrote about Hawking, about meeting Hawking um, at this at this conference in Sweden in uh, in my book, The End of Science. And I I said that after watching Hawking perform, he was already almost entirely paralyzed then, but he still somehow had this huge personality. Um, Absolutely. This must have been around the time you met him. I this was in 1990. You said shortly after the Gulf War. Yeah. So I've, I felt like Hawking was kind of, again, he had these, you know, wormholes and time travel, all this fantastic stuff in, in, his, uh, in his talk. I thought he was goofing on us. I felt like he was kind of seeing how much he could get away with before people said, what the hell? Come on. There was... Um... I can tell you a story, one of my favorite stories of Stephen. Stephen was lovely. He was lovely to my son, Hamilton. A truly kind person, actually. He's never really thought of in that way, but a truly kind, caring person. Um, we had constructed a facsimile of his office on a stage in London at Elstree Studios. And he had all of these stern photographs of Marilyn Monroe hanging in the office. Um, And we had recreated the office as faithfully as we could. We had the the photographs of Marilyn Monroe on the wall, um, probably not fixed to the wall as well as they should be. And during one take, uh, 
a picture of Marilyn Monroe fell off the wall, clattered to the ground. Um, Stephen, without missing a beat, said, a fallen woman. Um, and I remember that day, I looked at him. He tolerated me, which is something that I... I think was enormously kind on his part. I said, I think I know the reason you like Marilyn so much. And he looked at me and I said, because you, like Marilyn Monroe, was a person unfortunately appreciated more for your body than your mind. <laughs> and he gave me this really odd look pause and then said yes <laughs> that's good yeah he um that sounds like a bromance no I adored him uh, he um Incredibly smart, incredibly perverse, incredibly funny. What's there not to like? Yeah. Um, okay, Earl. I think. Uh, I hope we get a chance to talk again. I uh, appreciate time. this. Sorry it took so long. Um, I've got to get myself through a couple of more movies. Why am I making movies? I guess I'm making movies because that's how I make a living or that's all I'm really equipped to do, but that's what I'm doing. You're, you're, uh, well, I can't wait to see uh, your next one. Uh, can, I, can you talk about the movies you're making? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm doing a series on, on uh, the British espionage writer, uh, John le Carré, um, who is someone who really, really deeply fascinates me. And then I'm doing a series on Timothy Leary and uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith, who was with Timothy Leary in this very crucial period in the 70s. Wow. Uh, well, you know, as a 60s person, uh, I, I, I regret that I never met Leary. I've met a lot of the people I wanted to meet as a uh, science journalist, but... Uh, I met Leary, actually, just shortly before he died. And um, what a very, very strange experience, because he's the only person I've ever met who was actually fluorescent. He actually radiated light, whatever that means. I mean, you mean he's he was very charismatic? No, he was luminescent. Was he tripping at the time? Don't know. Probably. <laughs> if you had to guess, it would be probably. When might that come out? Don't know. I, you know, everything is in 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 a state of complete uncertainty. Yeah, a lot of these companies, um, people may have films in the pipeline that they can distribute, but production has stopped. 
right. no one, it, 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 there's been nothing like this in, as far as I know during my lifetime. Uh, people would always say if there's a problem here, um, we'll move production offshore. We'll find some location where we can film, whether it's South Africa or Australia. Um, uh, we'll find some place where we can work. But this is, this is worldwide. There is no place. There is no sanctuary. There's no place where people can congregate and actually work making films. And so film production has just stopped. Maybe this would be a good time to start your next book. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's stopped. That's why it's maybe a good time to start writing. Yeah. All right, Errol. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, best wishes to you and your family. I'll let you know when this goes live. And best wishes to you and your family. Please, as they say today, be safe. Yeah. Take care. Yeah.